Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Our reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we will be reading chapter 5. This is what Paul writes to the church at Galatia. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, for you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lamp. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has not been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourselves. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealous, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Very interesting passages, powerful messages as a matter of fact, from none other than the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Galatia 
to a community of believers, men and women who had found a new beginning in Christ. At one time they were in bondage to sin, they were lawbreakers, but in Christ Jesus they had found mercy, they had experienced the grace of God in salvation, they could confidently say that they were now new creation through Christ who died on their behalf. But at the time the Apostle Paul writes, he does not commend them for their celebration of a life of grace that they have embraced. Unfortunately, some false teachers have secretly slipped in among them, and they are beginning to preach a different gospel. They are saying, yes, you've been saved by grace, but now you must live by the law. Your personal efforts is an addition that is necessary for you to fulfill your work of righteousness. They are commending things like circumcision, ceremonial laws that Israel as the community of God would have observed in the Old Testament, and they have brought guilt and heaped it upon them that unless they add something to their salvation, their salvation is not complete. And the Apostle Paul speaks with great concern. Perhaps nowhere else in his letters do we see him speak with sternness, seriousness, and rebuke like we find him as he addresses the Christians at Galatia. But when you look at chapter 5, there are a number of things that capture our attention. Number one is that the Apostle Paul seeks to ground them in the knowledge of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Notice what he told them in verse 1, that you have been saved for freedom, and to freedom you must belong, and therefore stand firm, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He makes it very clear that for freedom Christ has set them free. And it is very important that they understand that yes, their sins have been forgiven, their past record has been cancelled, they have become a new creation, children of the living God, who must now live in awe and reverence of what God has done for them. Now what makes this very important for us? Why should we even be looking at the privileges of God's grace for God's people everywhere at all times? It becomes very important, especially when we remember that today we are plagued with all sorts of false teachers who either seek to add to the finished work of Christ or seek to subtract from what Christ has done. You have the legalists that Paul confronts in this letter who want to add ceremonial laws and other sorts of obligations, do's and don'ts on top of the grace of God. But also you have another extreme of people who abuse the grace of God and they are claiming that grace has come, grace is sufficient, now that our sins have been forgiven fully and finally we can now do anything we want. A case in the point is the modern grace movement today, which is teaching people that as our sins for the past and the present and the future were taken care of on, on the cross at Calvary by Jesus, and now we are free to do whatever we want. Out of this teaching, they claim that God has forgiven us once for all and forgotten all our sins. They claim that God is so gracious that he can no longer worry about how we live today. So for them, grace which would be a motivation for holy living has become a license for abusing that very grace and for doing the very things that cause God even to want to regret why he ever saved them. And because of this challenge, it is important that we address it, especially by asking ourselves one key important question. 
Yes, it is true that Jesus Christ has died and he died once for all. It is true on the cross Jesus said, it is finished. He paid the debt that you and I could not pay. And because of that, we have been set free. Thanks be to God. It is also true, according to the evidence of scripture, that Jesus died once, he's never going to die again. He paid the penalty for sins once for all. Meaning, there is a sense in which all our sins have been forgiven. Because when Jesus died on the cross at Calvary anyway, almost none of us was in existence. So in a way, our sins for the past, the present and the future have been catered for. But the question is, when we understand that Jesus has paid all there is to be paid, so that all our sins, whether past, present or future, can be taken care of, how do we live in light of that truth? Do we live by saying, don't worry about sin because Jesus paid it all? Do we live by saying, live the way you want because the grace is sufficient? Do we live by saying, I am saved, my sins are forgiven once for all, I guess I am free to continue sinning? Do we refuse to repent even when we realize we have sinned because we hear the modern grace movement saying that repentance is a sign of lack of faith in the sufficient grace that Christ has given us? How do we live in light of this truth? And one of the things that we need to understand, friends, is that what the Bible says about the effects and the results of grace. What happens for a life that has experienced grace and has been changed by the same? Does it become the kind of life that said, yeah, grace is available, now do whatever you want? Is that what we find the apostles doing? Is that what we see the New Testament believers doing? And you will notice, especially as you look at the letters of the apostles and even the gospels themselves, that grace on the contrary calls us to live a different life. Remember what the apostle Paul writes to the believers at Corinth, that they are now a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. They have died to sin and have risen unto righteousness. Meaning that the new nature at work in them is not one that seeks to indulge in sin, but one that panteth after righteousness, like the psalmist cries out saying, that as a deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you. The evidence of a changed life is that the desire has changed from sinful ones to ones that seek holiness. Intentions and motivations and goals of that person change. The person who once lived for himself now begins to live in awe and honor of the one who called him and one who saved him. And this is what we see the Apostle Paul saying. As he writes to the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter 5, verse 15, he says that he died for them all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died and rose again. They no longer live for themselves. Self no longer is the center. Jesus becomes the center. They live in worship of Jesus Christ who gave himself for them. That's what it means to understand grace, to live in it, and to appreciate it. People who have been changed by this grace no longer just go about singing that Jesus paid it all, but they also add on and say, all to him I owe. They understand what it took Jesus for them to be saved. And therefore they live in gratefulness. They make their lives count for the grace of Jesus Christ that has made them who they are today. 
It is very sad, friends, that today we live in a generation where Christians want to behave on the contrary instead. They look at the grace of God and what it has done, and they say, okay, Jesus has already done it, so why should we worry? Let's celebrate, let's enjoy whatever we want to do. And they indulge in the works of the flesh. And this is what the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Galatia. Yes, for freedom you have been set free. But he doesn't stop there. He says only, do not use your freedom to indulge in sinfulness. Do not use that freedom that has been given to you to take advantage of what Christ has done for you. Verse 13, he says that for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The Apostle Paul goes on and makes a comparison between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He says, here is a man who lives by the works of the flesh. A man who has not understood the marvelous grace of God. A man who lives for a self-centered nature. A man who is just involved and still chained in the wickedness of his past. But when a man has embraced grace, he has received a new nature. He is now a new creation. The Spirit of God is at work in him. Rather than indulge in his former life, now he wants to live for the one who called him. And the fruit of the Spirit is evident in his life. What used to be lust, what used to be self-centeredness, what used to be envy and divisiveness, now it has become peace. It has become joy. It has become grace. It has become patience. And so on and so forth. It is very important that we understand that the grace that saves us does not keep us the same. It saves us and it changes us to become the kind of people that God wants us to be. Again, you go into the letters of the apostles. The point in the case is the one of John. The apostle John is writing to believers. And in First John chapter 2, he reminds the believers of their need to continue desiring to live right. And especially in continuing the struggle against sin. In chapter 2 from verse 1 to verse 2, he says that, My dear children, I write to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who is the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is the propitiation for our sins? And not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. The Apostle John is writing to them gospel truth. His desire is that as they get deeper in their understanding of gospel truth, it will transform them and continue to change them from one level of holiness to another. He hopes that they will develop the passion for righteousness, that they will actively struggle against the promptings and the temptations of sin that seek to cling so closely onto them. But he is also aware that even in their struggles, they will time and again fall but because they are still human. So he hastens to remind them, if anyone does sin, we have one who stands before the Father. What is John trying to say? Number one, he's saying, yes, Christians will struggle even when they have been saved by grace. It is grievous indeed to fall into sin. And that's why God has provided a solution ahead of time. In the event that children of God find that they have sinned, there is one who stands before the Father. And this one, unlike the sinful man, is the righteous one. 
He is the one who has become the propitiation of our sins. There is a second opportunity, a second chance, another moment for those who have failed. Meaning that God really does care about our standing even when we have become Christians. Yes, the grace of God has brought salvation to us, but it doesn't stop there. It keeps prompting us and strengthening us and enabling us to live the kind of lives that will honor the Lord. Should we worry about sin? Oh yes, there is every reason for us to worry. If you are a Christian who has been saved by God's grace and you do not worry about sin, you are simply saying that you are taking the grace of God as a license for sinfulness. Again, John tells us in First John chapter 1 from verse 5 to 7, he says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. Now, I am aware that people, especially coming from the modern grace movement, will hasten to dispute this passage for one reason, that they believe that First John was not written to believers. So they might easily brush it off and say, yeah, we see that verse, we appreciate it, but you know it doesn't apply to people who have received God's grace. John was writing to Gnostic and believers who were coming into the fellowship and were beginning to interrupt it by saying that uh, the spirit is the one that is good but the body is not. They will hasten to give all sorts of excuses. But again, as you look at this passage, you can't fail to realize that John is actually talking to believers. First of all, he's talking about aspects of fellowship. Non-believers are not really interested in fellowship. John himself includes himself in this verse. He says that we have fellowship with one another. And of course, you know that John was not agnostic. He was a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says we, he's identifying himself with this fellowship of believers. Number one, he wants them to know that he is as vulnerable as they are. He is a recipient of grace just as much they have received it. He has a potential to sin just like them. And just like them, he, uh, he aims at living a life such as one that pleases God. Not the kind that takes his grace for granted. So he's saying... If you meet people who claim that they are in fellowship with God, who claim that they are walking in the light of the Lord, but actually they are engaged or involved in acts or deeds of darkness, they are simply saying they are hypocrites. They are simply saying they are liars. They really do not understand what grace is doing in their lives. But what are we seeing today? People who are saying, me, I'm a Christian, grace is sufficient, my sins of the past, of the present, of the future was taken for, and they are distributing condoms in university hostels. And they are advising young students to bathe together boys and girls in the name of grace has really come. And they are busy lying. And they are living in pride and arrogance simply because the grace has come for them. And anybody who does not fellowship with them is looked at as a grace hater, is looked at as somebody who is still in bondage to sin. Such a height of arrogance. What does that tell you? That they really have not understood God's grace. And John is saying that if anyone claims to have fellowship with God and yet walks in darkness, he is a liar and does not live out the truth. 
How do we know people who are walking in fellowship with God? We don't know it simply because they vaporize it. We don't know it simply because they go around saying, for us we are the grace movement people. We know it because by their behavior and lifestyle, we can see that they rhyme with the sound Christian teaching that we find in the scriptures. Unless their beliefs are in line with their behaviors, John says they are liars, they do not live out the truth, and eventually they should not even call themselves the grace people. Because people who have become recipients of grace live in a different way. They do not live the way they want. Again in First John chapter 2 from verse 4 to verse 6, John says that whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. And whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you hear that? The standard set is that one of Jesus. That if you claim to, that you really abide in Jesus, if you claim that indeed Jesus has forgiven you, if you claim that indeed your sins have been forgiven once for all, we want to see how you live your life. Do you walk according to the way Jesus walked? Do you love the things that Jesus loved? Do you do and say the things that Jesus says? Now, I am aware that we cannot live out perfectly the same standard that Jesus held, but at least we need to see a desire of young men and women who have been saved, seeking to live by that standard, because the seed in you, the desire in you, is one that prompts you to want to be like Jesus, to want to walk like he did, to want to be conformed to his image. But if you are doing things Jesus would not have done, you are sanctioning things Jesus would have considered an, an abomination, how can you at the same time claim that you abide in him? How can you at the same time say that your sins have been forgiven both for the past and the present and the future if by your manner of lifestyle now you even behave worse than an unbeliever? So where is the difference? What has the grace done in your life? Is that grace really working? Or could it be that you are under a delusion that you have become a recipient of grace when actually you are walking in a fantasy? It is very important that we understand that. That grace has its fruits, and these fruits are evident, and these fruits are consistent with the kind of Christian lifestyle that is described in the scriptures. Where some will say, for me I am saved, I know my sins are forgiven, so I don't see why one should put limitations on me not to do what I want. In fact, those who try to make me not to sin are legalists who are trying to bring me back under the law. And for such people, the apostle Paul has bad news. He challenges the Christians in Romans chapter 6. As you look at verse 1 and verse 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that the grace may increase? Yeah, we know grace has come. Yeah, we know grace has saved you. Yeah, we know it has taken care of your sins. And we thank God for that. But what does that mean for you? That now you can continue and add on the list where the grace found you. Keep piling up your sinfulness. And the Apostle Paul says, certainly no. Such a thing should never even be heard among you. In fact, he goes on and challenges them. He says, we died to sin. How can we even live in it any longer? How can you even be, have that kind of ongoing desire to want to do the same things that Jesus found you in? What message are you putting across that grace is not enough? 
If after grace you still enjoy the kind of life you once lived before grace came, then you are saying grace is not enough. And if that is not an insult against the grace of God, then I don't know what you call it. The idea that a person could trust in Christ for salvation and then go on living just as he or she lived before is very foreign to the Bible. The Apostle Paul writing again to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 hastens to remind them of what they have become in Christ Jesus. He says believers have become a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The Holy Spirit working inside them is now changing them and conforming them into the image of Christ. And what does the image of Christ look like? One of holiness or one of indulgence in, in sin? One of living a life of seeking to please God? Or one of saying, God, now that's none of your business. You saved me, thank you. But now I can pick it up from here and I can do whatever I want to do. Very important to understand. Continuing to indulge in sin is in essence a sign that you have not been converted. If you are the kind of Christian, it does not matter what label you give yourself, whether you are a modern grace movementist, whether you are the kind who has started calling yourself a grace believer, it's not so much about the label. It's so much whether you really live according to the label that you have. And continuing to indulge in sin is a sign that you are a liar. Grace has not been revealed to you. First John chapter 2, when you read verses 15 and 16, it says, That do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. And then John says, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You cannot love the world and at the same time claim that grace has been revealed to you. Because the world and the things in it and its desires are not of the Father. So how do we know that somebody has experienced God's grace to the fullest? That their life has changed and is continuing to change. That they have a desire to be better than they ever used it to be. That they long and have a passion for God's righteousness and holiness. That it grieves them when they do something that they know is contradictory to the nature and the character of God. That they want to run back to the cross where it all began. That their song day in and day out is always, Jesus keep me near the cross. Where that precious fountain of priceless, blameless blood ceaselessly flows to make sinners new, to make sinners free, to make sinners holy. That is the song of the redeemed. That is the song of men and women who have become recipients truly of the grace of God. As changed Christians, we are called to abide in Him and to live reverently. First John 2.18 says that, And now, little children... Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. When we abide in Him, when we seek to live the kind of life He has called us to, that He has saved us for, that His grace enables us to live, then we will not be ashamed. We will not shrink from Him when He comes. Instead, we will have confidence because we have been abiding in Him. 
Now for people in the modern grace movement who claim that grace has taken care of their sins so they are at liberty to add on as many more sins as possible believing that the same grace covers them. When the Lord Jesus who purchased their salvation comes again will they stand with confidence or will they have to shrink away from him in shame? Will they say, Jesus, thank you for the grace 2,000 years ago, but since you saved us, we have actually continued indulging in our life of sin because we know grace is sufficient? Or will they say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross, and because of what the cross did, we have now become a new creation. Now we live for your glory. Now we seek to honor you. Now we exemplify your life, your character, your holiness, your purity in our lives for the whole world to see that indeed those Jesus changes, he changes them for real. That's the testimony of the redeemed. That's the testimony of men and women who know grace. And if you cannot have that testimony, it means you are not abiding in Him. And for those who do not abide, once again as I conclude, let me remind you by reading the words of John, First John 2.18, that and now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. But you can only do that if you are living according to the nature of the grace that has been revealed to you. If you are the kind that has been abusing God's grace, there is only one way out. To go back to the cross where it all began. To say, Jesus, I have failed you. I have abused your grace. I am aware that if grace can't change me, nothing else will. Because there is no more sacrifice for sin. And may I tell you, my friend, Jesus will be there. The righteous one. The one who has become the propitiation for our sins. He will be there with arms extended, ready to receive you, to purify you, and to cleanse you from every unrighteousness. May God bless you. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.